are in Brussels, Belgium, the capital of Europe, for the very first EIT Manufacturing Summit in person. During this two-day conference, we will hear from experts from industry, academia, and the startup worlds on the role of skills for a more sustainable manufacturing innovation in Europe. Tamara Carlton is CEO of the Innovation Leadership Group, senior lecturer and author of Building Moonshots, 50 plus ways to turn radical ideas into reality. We want to know more about her vision of moonshots in manufacturing. Tamara, your book is called Building Moonshots. Maybe for our listeners who are not familiar with the concept, what exactly is a moonshot? The short definition of a moonshot is a big idea that has big impact. And for those that may not have heard this term before, it goes back to earlier stories about going to the moon. And in the 1960s, one country, the United States in particular, made the grand announcement, we are going to do this and put a person on the moon. So the moonshot was originally a literal shot to the moon. And it's important to mention because then it was about having a big idea and achievement to do something that was hard and not easy, but really challenging to mobilize and bring together the science and engineering community, but also to make it real. And there was a deadline attached in 10 years or less. Mm -hmm. So now when we talk about a moonshot, it has those flavors, but you'll hear other words too to describe it in terms of game-changing, transformational, disruptive, zero to one, all of this that's capturing not just the big vision, but the impact it'll have to change the world. Yeah. And if there's one thing that we need uh, in this day and age is to uh, change climate change. It sounds a bit silly, but this is one of the, the big challenges of our times. Uh, what kind of moonshots could help us achieve this, this, this feat? It's a great question. And my first response is just more moonshots generally. Mm -hmm. And climate change is interesting because this impacts everybody and animals and plants and industries around the world. And we have different groups tackling different elements. If I think about a moonshot language, the United Nations a few years ago introduced the Sustainable Development Goals, mm -hmm. SDGs. And this has caught on and helped people sh have a shared language to talk about big ideas that can make a difference. And then we've got foundations and venture groups such as Breakthrough Energies really trying to fund radical approaches to address climate change. And then you have small businesses and startups doing what they can as well. And some of them are moonshots. So you don't have to be a large team with deep pockets of funding. You have to be willing and have the courage to commit to a vision mm -hmm. And then what I love is these visions stack up and we can start to move the needle in terms of climate change, but all these other challenges that are facing humanity. Right. If we take a small detour to manufacturing, to industry, one of the biggest polluting sectors, so to say, um, what kind of moonshot technologies could really help move the needle, as you put it so so nicely? Well, there's a number of technologies now that are definitely top of mind for the manufacturing sector, but also other sectors as well. I'm thinking, of course, artificial intelligence and uh, generative AI and the questions that it's been raising in applications, but you also have quantum computing mm -hmm. and there's manufacturing aspects related to that. We've got um, kind of medical 
technologies that are crossing over into the manufacturing space, all of these, I think, impact how we consider what's possible mm -hmm. and, as importantly, what we don't realize could be invented because that, to me, starts to expand what we think about and bringing in talent and knowing how does the talent invent and implement the new technology and connect that talent back to industry outcomes so that not only do we have the tech, we've got people who can use it and mm -hmm. connect it, and then that creates this virtuous ecosystem. Yeah. So you're talking about the talent, for example, right? You, you also teach. Um, do you see more ambition, maybe, in these young younger generations, perhaps? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. Yes and no. Maybe and it's an unfair question. <laughs> <laughs> unfair to compare. Well, and I think this raises different perspectives or the point of view. If you're in a different generation, how do you look at the rising leaders, the youth, and the opportunities that we can help create mm -hmm. for them? Because hopefully we still have a planet that they can take forward um, or send to the moon, you know, Mars and, and, and further. But also, you know, for the youth, they've had to grow up you know, through the pandemic and adapt in many ways, deal with the influence of social media and other tools. So I find there is a hunger to do more, mm -hmm. even with all the amount of information available, not necessarily the awareness of knowing where to start or what resources exist or that you have a group such as EIT Manufacturing available and, and you know, could be a mentor or a next step in a future career. And so to me, you know, for my work both teaching but also with um, you know, other groups who are involved with youth is to say, how do we connect more of these communities and then also open more doors too mm -hmm. so that we can start to see these big ideas flourish. Right. Um, what kind of technologies are you most excited about? Or which ones have the most potential to have the biggest impact? Hmm. As I think about this question, what comes to mind is around how do we develop education and learning tools that create more tech to be developed. So it's not actually a particular one that strikes me. It's more around the conditions to allow us to create more capacity to do this. And I find you know, there's a lot of interest in being a top research institution. That's important, that gets the funding grants, builds up the kind of research discipline and, and state of knowledge, but also how are we preparing the people around us? And it goes both with the younger generation, but also upskilling and reskilling. Uh, you know, I came to my PhD mid-career mm -hmm. as a kind of non-traditional candidate. And I, I personally, I appreciate all the ways and pathways that we can create that then set up the ability to say, I've got a, I've got a favorite technology, mm. and I've got one too, and I've got one, and perfect. How do we now bring that all together? Yeah, maybe to break all of the specialization, to bring everyone together to get this more generalist, holistic approach, mm -hmm. probably. No, perfect, thank you. I think that's all of our time. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. <laughs> yes. As head of lifelong learning at Volvo Group, 
Frederick Iliason is a perfect person to chat with about the skills needed in industry and the importance of collaborations to help employees reach their full potential. So, Mr. Iliason, the topic of this manufacturing summit, the IT manufacturing summit, is skills or the role of skills to move the needle. Um, as the head of lifelong learning of a large corporate, what is the role of lifelong learning for you in, in your corporate or in general? I would say it's a uh, it's a lot of things. It's a lot of things, but uh, the most important thing I can do is create good fundamental or a base for the leaders and the employees in the company to gain tools or to gain access or to gain thing connection to learning capabilities, so they have a chance to be the most competitive persons that we can have. And uh, in my job, uh, it's the responsibility to create this environment so that people actually can learn, uh, easily can have access to things, uh, understand what is the company needs, what are the needs that we actually are fulfilling and how do we fulfill them and, and help the people to engage themselves to drive this. Uh, as we talked about uh, before, we, we need curious people we need people that really wants to drive forward uh, to uh, push for learning to get knowledgeable uh, and to come into a situation and then we need to create an environment to facilitate that and we do that through cooperation with others we do of course internal things we work with uh, universities uh, we work with the public ecosystem we work with other companies and of course, one important thing is we work with a lot of organizations like EIT Manufacturing or other organizations in order actually to realize this because we cannot do it alone. It's fairly impossible. We need to, in the fast pacing environment due to the technology, the harsh demand that we have to save the planet or, or to meet the, the net zero targets and others, it's crucial that with the speed that is needed, we cannot do that alone. We need to work together. And then to be in a, such a good situation where we could be part of, of these uh, inspiring networks uh, uh, with all these uh, innovative uh, people, resources, all these ideas, it creates, I would say, a good fundamental base for us to, to grow and, and, and generate this. So. This is also part of connected that to our environment. And yeah, how can we imagine these kinds of collaborations that that you talk about? Which which skills or which training do you focus on? Are these the soft skills still some of the hard skills that some of the employees need? And what do the um, the partners do other for the universities, for example? Uh, fundamentally, we we uh, start from sort of say the business needs that we have. We have our strategic needs, our aspirations, our mission, vision, where we want to go, and that's and and, and that sets the scene, so to say. That creates the needs, and then you have needs which is created, which is connected to the day-to-day -day operations for people. But you need to put them into the bigger context context of our strategic way of working and where are we heading, and where is the company going. So we need to sort of say start there. Then, when we have that clear for us, we need to look in different perspectives. How do we realize that? For instance, in the terms of EIT manufacturing, 
we connect to different universities, other organizations, come up with ideas that will see how we can realize this. We are part of, of these uh, goals and funding activities. We work with uh, in as good way we can uh, and connecting us to the other initiatives and see where could we actually bring in some value and get some value back. And the same way like that, we work with the universities across Europe or across the world where we connect to them, uh, where we have the same interest, for instance, in, in R&D activities, in, in, uh, <laughs> in these deep tech knowledge uh, activities that we connect to them. And in certain instances, we do R&D activities. Sometimes we do education activities, but it all leads to that. We need to make sure that, that the, uh, our employees are, say, competitive because that makes the yeah. competitiveness of the company and and not only the company but so say the environment that we are in and and the european perspective i mean from us we are a baseline in swedish companies so sweden is a swedish competitiveness is good but we are a european company we are have a strong foothold i would say in europe so we need to make sure that europe is competitive as well that's why we can't just work in one little region we need to we need to work across Absolutely. in the geographical context of it all, so to mm -hmm. say. So you start from, from the own business needs, a bit of a case-by-case -case basis, and yeah. then you try to create these synergies with, yes. with the collaboration partners, yeah. right? And, and it's uh, very much up to ideas and how visionary you are. Sometimes it could be large initiatives uh, across borders with a lot of multi-million multi dollar companies. Uh, together with the public uh, funding ecosystem. Sometimes it will be uh, smaller ones with organizations. So it varies a lot. But, okay. but, uh, and we also need to prioritize. Of course, we get a lot of questions. We cannot do everywhere. But, but uh, where we see that we can both gain value, but also be part of adding value. So one plus one is three and four. Mm. And, and not that we are... Then we are back into the traditional say supplier <laughs> exactly. buyer relationship but that it's more like we're talking about building partnerships here and building it with a complete environment around us how, how does that work for example we have an, we have an example of, of uh, a case where you as a corporate give value to either students or, or universities something a bit more concrete so that we can imagine this for instance uh, we do uh, in the technology area we do a lot of master thesis all over the world with with students, making sure that they uh, progress and can do their. We uh, offer in the same way as IT does. We have uh, summer schools for 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 summer work for for our. Uh, we do research activities together with the universities and, and researchers uh, and there, so to say. Uh, we have our own PhD programs uh, right. internally. We have. Uh, numerous of, of things that we are doing. Uh, we heard uh, in the uh, panel discussion before a lot of, of different ways of cooperating. And I think that we are part of doing most of all these types of things with different actors. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, no. yeah for researchers, for example, it's it's fantastic if, if a corporate opens their doors mm -hmm. uh, for a collaboration because it's not that easy, especially if you're in management, for example, management mm -hmm. research, to find these corporations that are willing to to share some of the data with them and to give them a little peek behind the... I think most companies are fairly willing to participate. 
sometimes it could be due to timing or that you don't you you feel that we have so much on our plate now so mm -hmm. we don't have time to engage in this that yes. that that could be reason but i think most of the companies at least that we are part of or, or work together with uh, are open and happy uh, to to open our doors for for quite many things and maybe for the the young graduates yes. amongst our listeners, what are some of the skills that they can themselves try to gain uh, before entering the workforce? First of all, I think you need to uh, have an idea on which industry you are targeting. So if your industry, if you are targeting our industry, it's always good uh, because we are fundamentally engineering company. Yeah. The STEM area is a good area where you can learn a lot of things. Of course, you do that through education. But then I think the personal skills are, are growing in importance. Uh, some people call them the soft skills or personal skills or human skills. I mean, they go under many names. <clears throat> uh, of course, you can educate yourself a bit into leadership skills, etc. But I think you need to also practice being a leader. Yeah. Uh, you can do that uh, during your education in certain things. You can do that in... in if you're doing a small startup or if you're doing something, but it does not have to be such a formal leadership. It could also be that you drive certain uh, informal projects or activities uh, where you le learn to interact with people. Uh, you're also learning that perspective also to communicate. You learn how to act around, socialize around people. You create an environment where people can learn from each other. So I think all those skills are always valued in a good mm -hmm. way. And sometimes people are too shy to lift them up. They write so few words in their CVs. I mean, you should be proud of all these things that you're doing and then really lift them up because yeah. normally when we talk about, when you talk to people around recruitment today, of what you're looking for, yeah, <clears throat> they're good in hard skills, but if they're not good in the human skills, it's so-so. Mm -hmm. So if you're competing against a person that has the same level of hard skills as you have. Mm -hmm. If you can use selling that you have better human skills, if you call them like that, mm -hmm. you will have the edge. So yeah. I think that's something that you, of course, you will learn throughout your whole life from mm -hmm. this area. You, you will never get to fully learn, but that what you can learn in that those areas are, are, yeah. are good. So don't be shy to mention that you trained, uh, of course, the sports team. No, 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 well. it's good. Yeah, highlighted. <clears throat> I would say. Uh, Coaching small kids, it's uh, harder than being a manager for old people. <laughs> <laughs> the kids are much more uh, honest. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. Now, so, so there are many aspects, but you should not be afraid. I mean, all types of knowledge could, in, in certain aspects, come to be used. Sometimes you don't know when or where you should use this, but, but uh, it's really good. Yeah. Robin Teigland is Professor of Strategy and Management of Digitalization at Chalmers University of Technology. We talked about which skills students need to succeed and how universities can teach them. So there's a lot of talk about uh, upskilling, reskilling, and needing the, the right skills for a better tomorrow, if you can put it that way. Um, you're a professor at Charles University mm -hmm. in Sweden. Yes. Um, what are the skills that students or young graduates need the most to enter today's industry? Yeah. There are many, many skills, but I think one of the most, well, actually, I'd like to focus on two. One, I think, is very much about just problem solving under uncertainty. 
being presented with a very difficult problem, a challenge, and, and without having the skills or the knowledge about really how to solve it. Technology is continuously changing. We have a world that is continuously changing and increasing pace of change. So I don't, we, we have to be very careful not to you know, teach skills that will already be old by the time they graduate. So for me, what I think is most important is really how do you solve problems under uncertainty and fast pace of change? How do you actually structure a problem, take it apart, find the pieces that you need to actually solve that problem? And that's where I think the second skill is, is, is also about how you move from being a problem solver to a solution finder. Mm -hmm. We are taught uh, growing up that we should solve the problem ourselves, that we should be independently solving the problems and getting the right answer all the time. If you think about, say, kindergarten through eighth grade and even in high school. Yes, we do have some project-based work, but it is still very much about you solving that problem by yourself. And I see today, even for example, with all the discussion around generative AI, I'll come in, oh no, we can't have take home exams anymore. We have to have it in the classroom so that they are only there and they've already read everything. And so this is about, you know, we have heard this many times, right? About memorization and so on. So for me, it's about how do we enable students to go from problem solvers where they don't think about how do I solve it myself, but how do I leverage my network to find a solution to the problem that I'm faced with. So it might be that I need to contact other, other students. It might be that I need to work with industry. It might be that I need to work with the public sector, but how do I actually use my networks, leverage my networks across uh, these different, you know, industry, academia, public sector, as well as geographically, thinking where are the different pieces of the, of the problem and how can, or the solution, how can I put them together? Mm -hmm. So these are really kind of two, two I would say, core. The you know going, you know, the being a problem-based, uh, you know, solving, structuring, solving problems, but then being a solution finder to actually to to take on those challenges. So it's really about the the soft skills in yes. the future. Very much about soft skills because I, we can teach a lot of the hard skills, but if we see a fast pace of change in the hard skills, what you learn is you know might already be changing. So we have to also enable that. Continuous learning, I think, curiosity, you know, how to continuously learn. And I, and I put that really under the, ca under the other two skills of this, you know, solving um, uh, structured or solving problems under uncertainty and being a solution finder. Because under those, that's about learning. You have to continuously learn to actually find the different pieces that would enable you to create the solution. Yeah. So. You mentioned uh, leveraging networks yes. just, just before. Um, it, it's also a bit about leveraging the new technologies. Right? Definitely, definitely. Do you see a, a different mindsets in, in, in your students, for example? Uh, yes and no. I think they come into the classroom, many of them, and are used to our traditional kind of old school type of education. And they some of them even want to continue that because they know how they know how it works. And I think one of our challenges in university is that there's so much focus on grades and grades to get the right jobs, right? And so they just want to know what do I need to do to get the right, get the best grade so I can get the best job. And I think that's that's a challenge as a teacher. How do we enable them to think differently mm -hmm. around learning? To go from you know taking a course to get a good grade to taking a course to enable learning. Yeah. And that I think is a, a huge challenge that we have. So I see very much we have a mindset that we need to work both with the, those in charge of pedagogy in universities, but also uh, with students. Mm -hmm. When it comes to technology in that aspect, I think what happens then is that there are so many new technologies and we can use them to enable learning. 
but what another you know challenge is that in many universities you have teachers who aren't who don't understand the new technology or there's no incentive for them to learn the new technology and use it in the classroom to give an example i worked a lot with virtual worlds and you know when they first came out second well it wasn't when they first came but when they had were in the hype in 2007 mm -hmm. to 2013 and i even created a an island for the Stockholm School of Economics, where I was a professor previously, for um, our school, for our, our business school, for the students to learn in this virtual world. I organized a seminar for all other teachers to come and learn about this fantastic mm -hmm. pedagogical tool, and no one came. The only two people who came to the seminar were visiting researchers at the mm -hmm. business school. So we have an incentive structure that doesn't motivate teachers to really learn these new technologies, to apply them in the classroom. And then you have a discrepancy with the students who are learning them all the time. And so how can we enable them to meet so that we actually enable students to use these technologies in the classroom because, or in the, in the educational system? Because when they leave and go out and start working, they need to know how to use those skills, these technologies too. And it's not about reading a book and then coming back and regurgitating what we've already, you know, what you've learned. So I, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, yeah challenges along the way to it that we have to work with. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think we definitely, if I think about technology and leveraging networks, is a huge um, possibility to enable you to leverage networks. You can use. I mean, this past uh, in spring, I taught a course uh, leading in digital world. I had 110 students, industrial economics uh, students, and they're ta they were tasked with enabling citizen science uh, within the marine um, industry. And so they had to think about a user case, a use case, mm -hmm. for some type of data to be collected. And then they had to work all the way back, and they actually had to build their own sensor for collecting data with a website where they could actually you know, stream in the data visualize the data, and then enable people out there to become their own citizen scientists by using this sensor. They had to go through the whole stream from, you know, identifying the data need to actually how you collect it. And this is a, you know, it's a tough, it's a, that was a huge problem uh, for them to be faced with. Um, but it was also kind of very, very challenging. But I think this is, it was a fantastic way to enable using technology in the classroom or, or in the educational system. Do you think there's a kind of a generational difference where education is kind of lagging behind? Well, it's funny you ask that. My oldest son, um, he's 29, he dropped out of Rotterdam School of Management, their international business program. And I asked him, why did you do that? Because after the first year, he said, I've got my network. I don't need anything more. I said, what better place in the world can you get a network with fantastically smart people and have access to all types of different networks across the world? It's like, RSM, fantastic. Mm -hmm. He said, I built my network and now I, I didn't, but aren't you interested in a diploma? No, what am I going to do with a diploma? I don't want to work for one of these big companies. I'm starting my own. So he's starting his own uh, company. Um, but his reflection, uh, what he sees very much, is it takes a generation for the learning, the research to get into the classroom. Mm -hmm. So, and he's seen that in the dis different disciplines. So, what I learned. Uh, you know, and when I was a student, when I was doing my PhD, when I first started going to academia, that's what I'm, you know, what, what he says, that that's what people are teaching. But the field has moved on. Yep. But then that doesn't get into the classroom yet. And so he sees that there's, there is that, that type of, of gap. And I, yep. and I do see that there's, because it does get back to the incentive structure. In university, you are motivated to produce papers, academic publications. That's what you, yes, it's great, the teaching. 
but how's your, you know, your research? So I think we need to really rethink too, if we're going to push forward the, the next generation of skills. Hans Manhout is investment director of FinIndus, a joint venture between ArcelorMittal and the Flemish region. We spoke with him about the role of corporate venture capital and the importance to collaborate with startups to accelerate manufacturing innovation. Great. So with FinIndus, you focus on sustainability, materials, um, circularity, industry 4.0. Uh, do you think that startups can contribute to the innovation goals or maybe the sustainability goals of large corporates? Well, obviously, they're a big source of, of technology and technology development. Uh, you know, traditionally, big corporates have always relied on their own R&D departments uh, to, to develop technologies. At a certain point in time, people realize that in the outside world, there are also things being developed which are attractive. And then, yeah, Often that led to M&A transactions, so uh, people or companies were actually buying certain technologies. And I think, uh, but that has already happened uh, decades before, uh, companies have also realized that they do not necessarily need to buy into technologies. They can also support technology development outside of their R&D departments. Uh, by cooperating with with, uh, with entrepreneurs that have great ideas and, 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 and develop uh, relevant and, and great technologies. And I think uh, that that sense of open innovation and, and using the external world and bring innovation from the outside in, uh, not through the R&D department, but also not through the M&A department, I think more and more com uh, corporates have, have seen the value of that and have realized the value of that. And you see also over the last couple of years, actually corporate venture capital has, has increased uh, tremendously. I think, I don't know the exact numbers, I should verify them, but if you look at the number of VC transactions in which big corporates are involved nowadays, mm -hmm. it, it has been growing steadily over the last, uh, definitely over the last decade. Yeah. What, what role does, does uh, or do CVCs play in, in this story as opposed to like the traditional venture capital and investment yeah. uh, vehicles? So just to rephrase your questions, what, what are the advantages, I would say, yeah. of, of a CVC versus exactly. a purely financial? I, I guess every VC investor or type of VC investors brings their own mm -hmm. advantages. And, but you see as a, as a what, what you have more in a venture capital investment than in uh, any other investment that you would make is that venture capital investors want to have an influence in, that, in the company that they invest in, either by bringing financial discipline, by bringing in uh, market expertise, technology expertise. Uh, so they're not just there just to control their uh, investment, but they want to contribute. There's mm -hmm. a consulting aspect to that. And if you look at it from a, a, a corporate perspective, what a corporate could actually bring uh, to, uh, to a startup is obviously is it, it, it network. Uh, mm -hmm. It is contacts within its own organization, to the outside world, to suppliers, to other market players. That's a very important aspect. It is a lead into the big corporation. Mm -hmm. So it exposes the technology and the technology company to the inside world, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. But what also should not be uh, underestimated is the fact that a corporate makes an investment into a startup as a very important signaling function. Mm -hmm. uh, it adds to the market credibility, mm -hmm. the street credibility of the startup uh, to be associated with a big brand name. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's also maybe a bit more intangible advantage, but a, a very important advantage of, yeah. of corporate venture uh, investments. Yeah. 
it's maybe also an advantage for the, the startups in the sense that we, we also at ATA Manufacturing work with a lot of industrial technology startups and we see very often that for especially for hardware startups it's very mm -hmm. difficult to find investments so perhaps this is also a good angle for them to know that there is a company backing them yep. that might also potentially use their project that is one uh, I would yeah I, I will come back to that but I, mm -hmm. I'll make a caveat on that but 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 it is true that we don't find a lot of uh, investors that are willing to step into mm -hmm. a uh, um, into a hardware investment yeah. actually one of my colleagues uh, uh, once had this saying which was I always liked it said well if you invest into a uh, ICT based startup uh, you put you give them money and they spend all the money on marketing you know <laughs> because developing a product is not that expensive you need a computer and some smart guys uh, and he said if you're doing hardware investments you actually you invest you spend all your market you, you, you spend all your money on product development and then you have to spend all your money again on marketing so it, it is it is more complicated it is more difficult also because on the other uh, side you have buyers that are typically quite conservative yeah uh, for them, there is sometimes more to lose by trying a new technology than there is to win. Mm -hmm. uh, the The idea of uh, you, you have never been fired for choosing IBM uh, uh, is that to convince a big industrial group to use a new technology, to use a new supplier is a big step. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot at risk. And so it takes a long time. It, it's, it's long sales cycles. It is convincing people. It's doing piloting. And having VC money hopefully, if you pick the right uh, CVC, can help you to accelerate the piloting. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, uh, seeing is believing. Uh, you're selling products to the companies run by engineers, and if they haven't seen it themselves, they will not believe it. Yeah, so that's a, that's a big caveat. Uh, I think you're right. You know, the de-risking of uh, new technologies and corporates is something that we have to have to work yeah. on. <laughs> and, and, and one of my colleagues from uh, Former league, uh, former colleague, because she's retired now from Chevron, once said, mm -hmm. and, and, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, to me, it resonated very well that it is sometimes easier to get venture capital money from a corporate than it is to get a PO from a corporate. Okay. Because venture capital money is run by the venture capital team and they're mm -hmm. used to dealing with risk. Where uh, if an operations guy issues a PO, I mean, he's usually not willing to run to run that type of risk, and yeah. he, he he really wants to know that the technology he's buying into actually works, and that the, the company that supports it will actually be able to support it also in the long run. Of course. So you work with a lot of uh, exciting new technologies. What are one or two maybe lesser known or lesser talked about technologies that could have a large impact on the manufacturing industry? Well, I I, I don't think there's a lot of lesser known technologies anymore and I think we have a lot of technologies now that are talked uh, about but can have a, a mm -hmm. huge impact obviously AI but that's not my domain uh, can have an, an impact on, on, on any company also on manufacturing companies we've seen for example since we started looking into industry 4.0 mm -hmm. as a topic which is about five six years ago mm -hmm. something like that this this the, the the deal flow in our uh, portfolio has has exploded i mean the, the, it's probably half of our deal flow right mm -hmm. now is is around digital that was something that we didn't anticipate in the past uh also everything around hydrogen and and, and renewable energy has 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 increased mm -hmm. because that's one of the biggest challenges and especially yeah we have a, a steel background uh, so uh, carbon uh, dioxide emissions are a huge topic mm -hmm. 
um, where we saw that five years ago, okay, everybody was, was scouting for technologies, but today people want to see pilots in place. People mm -hmm. need to start experimenting with that because the deadlines are so short to, to, to make progress that, uh, and then also everything around circularity, I think, uh, is, is, is something that is uh, going to become even more and more important. Uh, next to the energy uh, question mark, it is the availability of raw materials, the reuse of raw materials, uh, rare earth metals, for example, battery recycling, for example but also making products from a perspective that they're easy to recycle. Mm -hmm. So yep. thinking in advance about the circularity aspects and then having the right technology to, uh, to actually close the circle and bring back the materials where they, where they should be. And that's a big challenge. And, and okay, that's not unknown technologies. I think technology still uh, for a large part need to be further developed mm -hmm. uh, depending on, on the type of materials you're talking about. Of course. I think that's uh, all for our time. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe to The Art of Making on the podcast platform of your choice. We're also more than happy to hear from you. So reach out through the EIT Manufacturing website, that is eitmanufacturing.eu, or find us on the usual social media channels. Take care and talk soon. <laughs>